Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of On the Way Home. I'm your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. Uh, this podcast is a co-production between Blue Door, the organization I'm from, and the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Now, Blue Door, the organization I'm from, is doing great work up in York Region. And actually, we have a program called Construct. It's across York Region. It's across Durham and Peel. Uh, what it is is really it's a construction social enterprise, construction company with a social purpose. Uh, so we would do be- uh, basement rentals, landscaping, different uh, handyman kind of things. All that money comes back to Blue Door to help us uh, non-government dollars to, to do the great work we're doing to prevent and end homelessness. At the same time, we are launching uh, eight people each cohort or a couple over 100 people a year into the trades, which desperately need people to build housing. So it's a win-win for everyone. Uh, obviously, when people, the people who do the work are, are trained professionals. Uh, what you don't pay for uh, when they come to your house are the six to eight people that come with them that are learning on the job. So Construct is a really cool program. It's part of a wider program sponsored by the Home Depot Foundation called TradeWorks, where there's about 10 of us across the country doing similar kind of construction social enterprises, a really cool way to prevent homelessness, pay people a living wage, uh, get them on the right path and great career. So that's what's happening at Blue Door right now. Construct continues to roll as one of our programs, the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Well, hey, they've got a massive conference coming up uh, in the next while. And um, check that out. You can still sign up by the time you hear this podcast. Uh, They have amazing speakers, one of which we'll hear from today. Uh, it really is the largest and best of its kind that, that is happening November 1st to the 4th, I believe. Uh, check it out at caeh.ca. And if you want to become a Built for Zero community, also check out their Built for Zero work. Uh, it is amazing and really contributing to the end and reduction of homelessness. Now, let me get to today's guest. I've been wanting to talk to today's guest for a long time. He's had a lot of impact uh, across the country, across, around the world, really. It's just a real influencer in the work that we do. Uh, and I, I think his organization, uh, Orcoat, really was one of the first to really push that kind of rapid rehousing instead of just uh, kind of caretaking. And we'll hear more about that. So I have Ian DeYoung with me today. So Ian is a lifetime learner when it comes to all things related to homelessness. He is the president and CEO of Orcoat, which I just mentioned, Consulting Inc., and the author of the book on ending homelessness that came out a couple of years ago. And it's an excellent book. Check that out for sure. He's been involved in homelessness since the 1990s, really when, as we talked about on this podcast, the uptick in homelessness started. Um, you know, it was always around, but really took off in the 90s due to many policy changes. Ian has held a series of positions throughout his career, spanning the nonprofit, public and private sectors. He is also a former part-time faculty member in the graduate planning program at York University. He's a frequent keynote speaker and media commentator on homelessness. Ian is a thought leader in making homelessness a rare brief and, not, and making it non-reoccurring. Uh, Ian is an advisor to various orders of government throughout Canada and the U.S., supports the work of the National Alliance and Homelessness, of course, the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness, and the Australian Alliance and Homelessness, and provides consultation and advisory services to dozens of nonprofits annually. Blue Door being one of those, by the way. Um, in 2015, Ian started... The Leadership Academy on Ending Homelessness and has worked with over 800 leaders that share the desire to end homelessness. Much of Ian's work these days focuses on supportive housing, ensuring shelters are housing focused, uh, including the support to the Canadian Shelter Transformation Network, 
which we've had as a guest before, of providing effective supports to assist people with staying housed and effectively responding to unsheltered homelessness through a housing-focused lens. And repeat, a housing-focused lens. Everyone deserves a key to that front door. Uh, we have to go beyond emergency shelters and make that stay short. Ian, such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So we asked the same question to all of our guests uh, to start off because it's a little different for everyone that we ask. It's fairly personal. And that is, what does home mean to you? <sighs> I mean, I, 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 when I think about home, I can't help but think about house. And not because they're the same, but they're used interchangeably, but mean so many different things. I think, you know, home is, is very nuanced. It, it is... Uh, you know, on the one hand, I could say when I'm out in the middle of the woods uh, in the backcountry with my brother uh, on a canoe trip, I feel at home. Uh, but that's a personal feeling. Uh, but I could also tell you that being at my house with my family uh, also feels like home. Uh, so a, a sense of belonging, uh, a sense of comfort, a sense of safety, uh, a, a place that's very personalized, both is psychologically and emotionally. Uh, as well as the kind of decorations and accoutrements we might put in our dwelling um, in a feeling of attachment to both place and people uh, and sometimes attachment to feeling of, of, of peace. I think uh, that would be the use of the word home when I describe like being in the woods, but feeling at home, just this feeling of, of great internal peace. Um, I think that, that home uh, is one of those things that you know it when you feel it, uh, but to look at someone else's experience and try to say that's a home or that's just a dwelling, uh, I think is next to impossible to do. I love that. I love that feeling of internal peace. Uh, we haven't heard that before, and that is, that is very powerful. Uh, so today we're going to talk about something that uh, has been on the minds, I think, of many Canadians. We've heard a lot in the news, especially over the last uh, two and a half years, and that is uh, we're going to talk about encampments. And for those people who may not understand really what an encampment is or what, what, what we'll be speaking to, can you just give us kind of a brief cold stove version of what are encampments? So encampments uh, don't have a national definition. They don't really have provincial or territorial definitions, and they rarely have municipal definitions. And so when we talk about encampments, and I love the question, uh, people tend to draw their own conclusions on what constitutes an encampment when they hear the word without us precisely defining what an encampment is. Now, let me give you some examples of variations where it has been tried to be defined. Uh, one of the considerations is whether or not there's a structure involved. And so in jurisdictions that go down that road, they're trying to differentiate rough sleeping. So someone who might be, let's say, sleeping in a park without a tent or sleeping bag uh, from someone who establishes a tent or other structure. But there's other jurisdictions uh, that have had things that have been labeled encampments when really it's squatting or people who are dwelling in like a public restroom uh, on a quasi-permanent basis. The other consideration in encampments usually is uh, how long the person is in the same location. So uh, to that extent, some jurisdictions start to look at the number of nights or the number of days that a specific site might be occupied by the same people. And then the third consideration in encampments usually is the number of people. Is one person in an encampment or do you need two or more people? And do you need two or more people in two or more structures or can they share the same structure? Uh, this all seems to be a little bit semantic. However, 
it becomes important in the context of both policy and program response. If we can't define it, we don't know what exactly it is we're trying to address. And so I think if we want to move forward in the space of responding to encampments, we need to do a better job either at a local, provincial, territorial, or federal level uh, of truly defining an encampment. But to paint a picture for your audience, I think, uh, generally speaking, uh, we're looking at uh, some sort of continuation of the same space being occupied that generally falls within the realm uh, of understanding an encampment and uh, whether or not there's a structure involved uh, usually feeds into the understanding as well. So uh, I think generally speaking, people would say same space, night after night, some sort of structure, whether that's a tent, lean-to, tarp. Uh, some people have constructed like many houses or cottages uh, in the woods, uh, demonstrated exceptional carpentry skills. Um, but just a sense of, of space uh, in place occupied uh, repeatedly tends to constitute an encampment. Thanks. So it's, it's fascinating and, and appreciated, right? Because as you said, how do we really respond if we don't, if we haven't defined what it is? Speaking of responding, I think that's a, a lot of what we've seen in the news over the past few years too, is what has the response been to encampments? You'll have uh, neighbors saying, you know, we can't use this park anymore. And others saying, hey, this is a result of a lack of housing and, and it's, you know, the right to housing and they can do this. And, and so government at times are forced to respond. You have written a guide to responding to encampments. Can you tell us about how this came about? Well, I think what we saw starting in the earliest days of the pandemic response, when shelters were thinning out, uh, we saw some communities that didn't necessarily have alternate capacity for people to go. I think we saw people experiencing homelessness that had used shelters and may have continued to use shelters if there hadn't been a pandemic. And it wasn't about the thinning out. It was really worried about their own health and welfare and wanting to be in a non-congregate environment. I think that contributed to it, uh, as well as what we've seen during the pandemic, uh, skyrocketing uh, rental accommodation prices without uh increases in income assistance substantial enough to really offset some of those costs in, in private market housing, uh, leading people to need more services, but services not always being available. And so uh, one of the things that we heard a lot of, and I know other organizations like the Canadian Alliance heard a lot of, uh, is that encampments were popping up in some communities, even rural and remote communities where they hadn't existed before, uh, suburban communities where, uh, yes, there had been encampments, but perhaps not as many, and certainly in urban environments, uh, that encampments were growing. And uh, this led to conversations around some of the experience that I've had in the space uh, for a number of decades. Uh, and really, could we provide some guidance to communities uh, based upon some of the work that I've done with different communities, both in front of the camera and kind of behind the scenes, in, in helping communities really galvanize what the response to encampments would be. And so we, we got invited by the Canadian Alliance to uh, enter into the space of, of developing this document. Uh, and what was fascinating to me was, while it's intended to provide guidance for, uh, you know, some people they wanted more operational details. And then we also uh, started to see just the variation of opinions perspectives and experiences in encampments throughout the country. Uh, that there isn't just one type of encampment, 
uh, and that in fact we may be um, in a position where our response would be better uh, if we could think about the mechanics of collaboration to respond rather than trying to develop a typology of every single type of encampment. So this guidance uh, tries to accomplish a, a few things. It, one, uh, it tries to provide some direction to service providers and community leaders in terms of how to think about encampments, how to respond to encampments. It draws upon some of the practices we have helped other communities put into place uh, that has seemed to be effective in moving forward. So it's, it's got that intended audience. Uh, but I also would say that, that, that one of the primary purposes is to continue the conversation around encampments uh, and continuing the conversation, not just to get clarity uh, around what exactly constitutes an encampment, but to get clarity around um, how do we most effectively respond? What are the considerations in the process? Uh, and so the guidance uh, maintains a very strong housing focus that really if we embrace that housing is the only known solution to homelessness then any solution to an encampment has to have some solutions attached to it we can't just be uh, out of sight out of mind we can't just be pushing people uh, along off public spaces and we need to like balance uh, what is often seen as as an enforcement response uh, with a social service response and perhaps uh, try to guide communities to look more at the social service response with an enforcement kind of uh, last resort, as opposed to what was starting to happen in a number of communities, which is they were leading with enforcement and then scrambling to try to figure out the social service pieces. So the guidance really tries to, to anchor it in a social service response as well. Yeah, so much to unpack there. I mean, uh, when you talked about enforcement, social service response, we saw in, certainly in the city of Toronto, um, and our producer Chris and I were talking about this before you joined us, that the response was enforcement. It was awful. Uh, Chris actually made the comment that we we were way more uh, enforcement was way more violent with people experiencing homelessness or unhoused than it was with our, our convoy people who were, who were treated. With more uh, decency, I, I guess it's not one or the other, is it? You said there's a combination of both. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think anytime we're talking about encampment uh, in public spaces, so not encampments that might be on private property, uh, but in public spaces, what really encampments represent is a contested public space. What's the purpose of the public space? Who can use the public space? Who can occupy public space? And for what activities or um, uh, in, in sort of whether that's a social engagement in a park or a, an encampment, just what sort of activities are, are permitted in, in public spaces. Um, and I think in, in this kind of enforcement versus social service sort of uh, divide, what we saw a lot in communities uh, throughout the country is uh, police feeling somewhat helpless uh, by law, officers in many jurisdictions or equivalents uh, feeling really frustrated that they didn't feel that there were solutions happening, that they were put in a really terrible position uh, of essentially saying to a vulnerable group of people that you just got to go. So, you know, I was really heartened by the kind of compassion uh, that was driving some of the frustration. They, there, there were certainly people on the enforcement side, I was like, this is not working and it's really expensive. Uh, on the social service side of things, though, uh, what it's really caused us to think through 
is what is the purpose and role of street outreach in encampment responses? What do you do if your community is so small you don't have a dedicated street outreach response? What do you do if you're in a large metropolitan area where you have more than one outreach response? Where do you find leadership? Uh, and what type of outreach do we actually want to see in a social service response? So uh, trying to frame our thinking, uh, last around kind of contact-driven uh, engagements, which is more survival-based, critically important, but uh, making sure that that isn't the exclusive approach to street outreach, that there's an impactful housing-focused approach to outreach. And that impactful housing-focused approach to outreach, uh, I think, really starts to get communities to think through how do we use our precious housing resources uh, most effectively? How does this fit within coordinated access? Uh, how does this fit within our broader uh, objectives and our community plan relative to homelessness? Uh, because when we see encampments, uh, I think many in the general public, business community, others uh, think that it's the failure of the homelessness response system. And when we get into a, a social service response, with other stakeholders around the table, I think what they quickly learn is that the social service uh, response is probably most appropriate, but is often remarkably under-resourced or has a leadership issue in terms of how we're aligning resources uh, to make it work, or the social service response um, can sometimes get into a place of groupthink, uh, and they don't have all their perspectives on uh, effective approaches or even temporary solutions to encampments. So uh, what we try to do with communities and through the guidance that we prepare for the Canadian Alliance uh, is really say, you have to develop a structure uh, that is grounded in key principles. Those key principles will often lead to social service response first, exhaust that social service response for everybody who wants a social service response, and any sort of enforcement uh, is going to be the very last resort and only in those instances where there is no other appropriate safe alternative. Uh, and what I've seen in some of the communities that we've worked with is that they've been able to take uh, larger encampments, let's say more than 100 people, and really whittle it down to less than 10 people. That They can find temporary or permanent solutions for the overwhelming majority of people in encampments, uh, and then enforcement is really left with a very small group of people who are adamant that they don't want any of the social services offered uh, and they want to remain uh, outdoors, in which case it's a different conversation uh, around if we are going to have people staying outdoors uh, because it's their choice and all social service options have been exhausted, although we'll continue to try, uh, where do people go at that point from enforcement? And, and I think that there's still some gaps in terms of what the overall response is. But when we think about enforcement versus social service, uh, I think what we're really trying to steer communities towards is use this as an opportunity to increase uh, the connectivity between your social service partners, uh, expand your thinking to include other community resources and perspectives, uh, and make sure that we're not leading with bylaw or police to respond, uh, but we're really leading with those uh, individual professionals who are well-trained to respond to unsheltered homelessness and help people living in encampments consider, explore, and move forward with alternatives. It's so interesting, right? Because it's really, I think about the response, of course, uh, in the city of Toronto, where the city would say, hey, we've exhausted all those social, we've, to your point, like we, we're, we're there. We've been doing this for months. 
comes a time we're down to a few people we've got to move in but then the amount of that response when you're on horseback and bring it i think it was a two million dollar cleanup too that people said and to your point if social services are underfunded and they can't respond as heavily as they'd like to why not pour some of those dollars in? i know it's very complex but i know there was a lot of pushback because if you ask on one hand the city is saying hey we've exhausted that and you have social service providers that say i would not agree that we've exhausted or gone far enough yeah i i think that's uh, one of the reasons why we need a, a leadership structure and a governance approach to responding to encampments at a local level i think that when we just look at a um response that says okay well uh, we've exhausted social services. No, we haven't. Well, that's really a conversation for a broader leadership group uh, to come to those determinations as opposed to one person. And I also think any sort of enforcement response uh, has to be um, proportional to the number of people that remain and has to still be leading uh, from a place of empathy and compassion that even on the day that people might be forced to leave, uh, do we still have an adequate social service infrastructure to offer on that day? Uh, and when we don't, or the, the enforcement arm and the social service arm work in isolation, they're not working together, uh, they're talking past each other and they're not even talking to each other at all. And I think that creates confusion for people who are living in encampments. Who do I listen to? The social service person, the outreach worker, or the income support worker who comes down here? Or the, do I listen to bylaw or police? Um, so I think that when we look at some other Canadian examples, uh, and we'll you know talk about Northern Ontario as an example, uh, you know they take a, a, an approach that was very much community oriented, collaborative, uh, multi social service organizations coming together, Indigenous and non Indigenous organizations coming together, uh, really getting housing uh, involved on the social housing side in addition to uh, the nonprofit. Uh, street outreach response, uh, and then being very data driven in the approach. I think you know we could we could point to examples or case studies uh, where enforcement uh, really didn't need to do much at all, even at the very end after social services uh, were exhausted. And I think that it also comes from uh, ongoing communication with the people who are living in encampments and where there is a leadership structure appreciating what that leadership structure is. Now, I just want to add one more comment on this though. Uh, and it's part of the confusion around what constitutes an encampment. Uh, sometimes what we're addressing uh, is a protest. Um, and if we have people who have principled beliefs that they're protesting for, uh, let's say an expansion of shelter or an expansion of uh, safe and appropriate housing or an expansion of SROs or uh, you know even contesting the rights of land, uh, I think that that gets handled in a very different way than just trying to exhaust the social service response because the needs of the individuals or the demands of the individuals who are staying in the encampment uh, are very different between protest and encampment. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart. Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity.
To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. It's a it's a very good point too, and I think that a large amount of legal response sometimes is for the protesters as well, anticipating there's going to be a crowd there. Uh, you know, and it's not really for the people from the encampment, but the crowd that they're anticipating that will push back and, and not wanting that to get out of control. So you've written this this guide. What has the response been so far? Well, one of the fascinating things that, that I've found with the responses is, is um, uh, while I'd say, you know, the service providers that I ran it past in draft stages and uh, community leads that I uh, ran it past in draft stages, um, you know, they wanted uh, more in some directions, less in other directions. Uh, certainly people in the uh, kind of legal advocacy uh, framework of, of reviewing the document had a completely different perspective. Um, and I think what I really took away, having, uh, you know, been to lots of encampments, but certainly developing this guidance is is talking to people with lived experience in encampments uh, within about an hour, hour and a half drive from where I live, and certainly not exhausted or scientific in terms of sampling methodology, uh, but talking to end users of services or the recipients of services in encampments, um, what really struck me was uh, that anything that would help overcome the confusion uh, was welcome, uh, the confusion that they felt in terms of differing voices, um, and that uh, they, kind of other kind of key takeaway for me from that is um, if this is really about trying to lead to solutions like housing with supports as necessary or uh, even other temporary locations where people could stay um, that that is a dialogue that uh, they were certainly eager to make sure was happening at the local level uh, and I think that if we look at the kind of broader constituencies the service provider group system leader group, um, academics, activists, uh, legal scholars, uh, and we kind of take in uh, some of the considerations of people with lived experience. Uh, I don't think that we've landed on one place where there's full agreement uh, on an encampment response. I don't think that um, we have a set of core principles that are agreed to uh, nationally on what the response is. And I think that we uh, have some very polar views uh, in terms of uh, what's the next step in encampment response in Canada. Is this uh, the moment where we um, collectively dig in and say this is a proof point uh, like no other of the need for investment in housing? Uh, or does this become the time where internal to our sector, uh, we spend so much time uh, quibbling with each other, uh, that we lose sight of the people that we're trying to serve at the end of the day, uh, which is the individuals, couples, and thankfully rarely in Canada families that find themselves in positions of being in an encampment. We need to make sure that as we continue to evolve our thinking, and even as we continue to look at updating this guidance or somebody comes forward with alternate guidance, uh, that we continue to uh, put the people we serve at the center of what it is we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and this guidance um, ultimately was trying to make the position that uh, we got to have a service response that's coordinated. We've got to be focusing on temporary and permanent solutions. 
And if there is going to be any enforcement, it's a last resort. And I would hope that we have a strong agreement across that, regardless of uh, nuances and how we might view uh, specific types of encampments or what the appropriate response might be. Awesome. Well, I, I certainly know that it would be uh, any guidance in responding would be very, very welcome. Uh, it sounds like, it, you know, you're, you're, there's a lot of great things uh, to support a leadership group in, in thinking about pushing this through. There's been different responses across the country. Can you talk about any examples where people have done this well? I, I mean, again, because they're so diverse, uh, yes, there's some proof points in terms of effective responses to encampments. But we also have to look at every single one of those proof points in local context. Like not everything that's, you know, worked well in one community is immediately transferable to another. Um, so I, I, a couple of examples. I think, um, you know, there was a, a very large encampment by very large. I mean, more than 100 people in uh, a downtown park in Sudbury, Ontario. Um, this is something the community hadn't experienced before uh, developed. Uh, uh, an approach that was really got a, a strong collaborative element with uh, structures of leadership and governance to guide the work um, that really focused on finding bridge housing solutions, permanent housing solutions, uh, integrating with existing housing programs, uh, some flexibility of funding to allow for uh, an increase in like family and friend reunification uh, in or outside the community uh, seeing a lot of uh, the value of integration of social services with the nonprofit street outreach response to take care of um, income assistance issues. Uh, and yes, it took months. And yes, it took uh, an exceptional amount of political will. Uh, but they were able to reduce the numbers out of the downtown park to something very, very small uh, prior to having to move forward uh, because people were able to find alternatives that were safe and appropriate. Uh, so that would be a good example. And I know a number of communities have, have looked at that because it's very public. Um, another uh, example uh, that I'd point to, which is uh, slightly different, um, where police and a social service response can do a good job of coordination uh, was basically just outside the property line of the Calgary drop-in. Um, and with a number of people on uh, Dermot Baldwin Way, just outside uh, the Calgary drop-in, uh, you know, they started this kind of outreach response, getting to know people, the reasons why they weren't using shelter, et cetera. Uh, but one of the other things that was learned in that process through the partnership with police was just the amount of gang activity uh, and victimization of vulnerable people that was occurring right on their doorstep. Uh, and so while I still would lead with a social service response and they did have resource fairs and the ability to serve people, it also shows that, you know, if we think that all encampments are uh, people who, um, you know, are, are making a deliberate choice, who are safer and freer outside, I think that the one example from Calgary and just one micro location within Calgary showed that that isn't always the case either, that, that there are times where, uh, actors that are, are in encampments uh, have motivations that are not about community and collaborative living and mutual aid and trust, but are really about uh, preying upon very vulnerable people with threats or acts of violence. Um, so I think that we need to 
you know, look at those two as like completely different contexts, completely different approaches, completely different set of circumstances, uh, but both uh, effective in different ways, just as a couple of examples. Um, and then there are, are other examples where uh, I think that there are some positive lights, uh, but not necessarily a community-wide galvanizing of the, on those core sets of principles and a response moving forward. Uh, and so I think other communities, we might see a more mixed reaction, or there's some case studies of success stories within the encampment, but the encampment as a whole uh, wasn't necessarily seen as much as a success. Um, and then, uh, you know, we could point to case studies of, of communities that lead with that enforcement response where things go sideways and they waste tons of resources. Uh, and I think those case studies are important too, because they're good proof points of what not to do. Absolutely, they are. Um, and, and we learned that in a very expensive and hard way. Now, you mentioned before, and it's why we had Kevin Webb on from the Calgary Drop-In a while back talking about that. It was great. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. Um, you mentioned before public and private. I know in, I think, the region of Waterloo, there's a public where the region actually leaned in. And someone privately said, okay, we can use this land. They started putting some little physical structures on there. Um, the region gave them some funding, started to grow. They got water hookup. Uh, things were happening there. We've had them on the show as well. Not everyone really agrees with it. And I know, you know, from my own ORCO training, really, that kind of, hey, let's let's just build a better shelter. And I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that's not really the way forward. What are your thoughts uh, around that as a community response, leaning in a little more? I think... Uh, there are some significant concerns uh, that come into sanctioned encampments. Um, and not that they're all insurmountable, but they're the sort of considerations a community has to really deliberate and discern prior to moving forward with that sort of approach. So let me lay out a few of the big ones. Uh, so one of the big ones is um, some communities, and I'm not talking specifically about Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, but there are certainly some communities uh, that have gone the route of sanctioned encampments um, in throughout North America uh, where they have no exit strategy. So they start by saying we're in a crisis, either we don't have enough shelter beds or people aren't going to our shelters because that's another misunderstanding around encampments just as an aside. There are good examples of Canadian communities that have lots of shelter capacity and still have lots of people living outside. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have to look at, uh, uh, you know, if we were to invest all this money uh, in whether it's better tents, tiny home type structures, sheds, water hookups, electricity, etc. cetera, uh, there isn't, nor should there be, in my opinion, uh, any mechanism to force people to use it. So yes, people who might've already been in that place uh, may use it, but one of the challenges in other places is, Politically, they say we have a sanctioned encampment or campground or outdoor living space or outdoor shelter or uh, safe public space for people experiencing homelessness, get used lots of different names. Uh, and then people say, but I still see lots of people who are experiencing homelessness sleeping in tents, you know, downtown or in my neighborhood park. And uh, the response is, well, yeah, because uh, there's no way to force someone who's living downtown or in the park to go to that sanctioned site. There's no way to force people to stay there either if it's not the sort of community that they wanted. Um, 
so I think there's challenges there. The the, the other big challenge, uh, sanctioned encampments are not free. Uh, and the sort of service response that people start to layer into sanctioned encampments, uh, the price tag adds up really quickly. And before you know it, the cost of sustaining someone in a sanctioned encampment can be much higher than the cost of housing and providing some sort of rental subsidy uh, to the same person. So then we have a decision to make as a community. What's the best investment? Is the best investment the sanctioned outdoor living space that might be very well resourced and services and supported? Uh, or is the best investment helping this person access housing in a market that's unaffordable, but with a deeper subsidy, we might be able to get there and then wrapping supports around people. So I want communities to think through the cost impacts. Um, I want them to think through the exit. How does this ever wind down? I want people to think through the, um, if we build it, yes, some will come, but when we build it, not everyone will come uh, part of, of it. And I want communities to give careful consideration to uh, how does this fit within the rest of the system of care? Uh, because when we start going the route of sanctioned encampments, it often, though not exclusively, means siphoning resources away from other parts of the system, whether those are day services, drop-in services, food security programs, hygiene programs, uh, you know, drop-in centers, day centers, shelters, street outreach, the money has to come from somewhere. Uh, and when a community says, well, you know, we'll come up with our own pot of money from, you know, some sort of municipal reserve fund uh, to put into it, it's also a bit of a, you know, policy question for me. Uh, well, if the money was available all the time from a different source other than like provincial, territorial, or, or federal um, uh, funding programs, uh, why weren't we investing that earlier in preventing this encampment from occurring? So uh, I think we need to be more proactive and a little bit less reactive in this space. Uh, and I think that sanctioned encampments are often a reactive uh, activity as opposed to a solution. Um, and the costing of them is very expensive with the population group that may not want it. Um, so there's a lot that has to be unpacked there. And when you do have sanctioned encampments, um, generally speaking, in in uh, different parts of North America, if you got one, mm, wait a while and you might have two. And then you have three. And then you have the other parcels of land or entire parks that are um, uh, now serving as sanctioned encampments. Uh, and we haven't got any closer to the solution, which is housing with supports as necessary. Well said. And I think certainly if you look at, which we, we reference, obviously, if you look at a country like Finland, right, part of their response was not a larger encampment or more shelter spaces. It was, in fact, many different types of housing to fit the many different needs. And that's pretty fairly simply uh, to reduce shelter spaces because they didn't need that much of an emergency response, but certainly not in encampments. Right. So I think if you, you've written a book on this. That is not really uh, usually. Uh, sanctioned encampments are not part of a successful campaign when you're looking to prevent and end homelessness, for sure. Well, this, this has been fascinating. I, I think I, I thank you so much to you and the team for for putting putting together this guide. It's so needed, uh, and I, I I know it's it will be evolving all the time. I think you know with the pandemic as well, 
uh, and, and colleagues and I have in my team have discussed this, we're seeing more and more people, unfortunately, that are uh, unhoused, experiencing homelessness, um, and, and with, with, you know, looking at, we need more resources, more options. Encampments, hopefully, are not uh, one of those that we, we push forward. Thank you for the work that you're doing, this work. If people want to go check out uh, more about Org Code, they want to order your book, they want to see the work you've done in the past, find out where, where do they go? Probably the best source of information is our website, orgcode.com, O-R-G-C-O-D-E.com. Uh, you can find everything from upcoming training to uh, resources to a link to order the book to uh, getting in contact with us if, with further follow-up questions or uh, specific you know, issues or pieces of work related to homelessness response, housing with supports. Um, and uh, you know, our entire mission of our organization is to help communities and organizations make homelessness rare, brief, and uh, non-recurring. And um, it is our passion. It is what we believe strongly in. And we really want to help communities and organizations succeed in the space um, because I, I still believe uh, that the situation that we're in was created by failed policy, failed systems, and certainly not by failed people. Uh, and if we really want to embrace solutions, um, we have to put people at the center of what it is we're doing uh, and ask ourselves, does every person deserve a home? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then our policy responses and solutions need to be aligned to that objective. You can learn more about that in our work, orgcode.com. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, uh, see little snippets of of the sort of resources and projects and things that we're working on on our website as well. Very cool. Check that out, orgcode.com. And at the upcoming CAEH conference, uh, look for Ian. Uh, I guarantee it will be one of your favorite moments at the conference. Uh, always, always, uh, I mean, I, I learned so much today. So will you. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, we have heard that word in Camden so many times over the last uh, couple of years. I think we will continue to hear it. We, you know, but today we're talking about a response a guide to responding. So glad this is happening. And, and Ian, there's so many uh, gems and nuggets within that podcast. I'm going to have to listen back again uh, just, just to pull them out. Check out his presentation at CAH. I meant when I said you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, another great guest uh, on the show. Every time uh, people, you know, educating, dropping awareness uh, or creating awareness, it, it's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next week on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. 
produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.